my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich man Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. Erica Alexander is an award-winning actress best known for her roles as Pam Tucker on The Cosby Show and Maxine Shaw on Living Single. She also stars in films like the award-winning Get Out. Most people who dream of becoming an actress, you know, think of having to go through many, many years of auditions before they get that first role. But your breakthrough came super fast. How did that happen? I was attending an arts program, performing arts program in Philadelphia in the Freedom Theater. It was called New Freedom Theater. Uh, It was a six-week program, and in the fifth week, a movie came to town, a Merchant Ivory film. And they were looking for black girls and Latina girls to audition for the film. And so we were all encouraged to do it. And so we did. And after several auditions and, you know, a few weeks went by, they made their choice. And I was the lead in it. And it was a film called My Little Girl. And I got um, not only a chance to, you know, be in a professional setting, but also uh, get a SAG card and that gave me health care and things like that. So there were other opportunities that were connected to it that were really consequential for me. But it was just a matter of sort of being picked in a big open call, which is pretty unusual. And Merchant Ivory is kind of like the, the holy grail for actors. I mean, that's no shabby first role. Well, Sam, you know what Merchant Ivory is, but most people don't because it doesn't even exist anymore. But before Miramax, it was considered a very high-toned production company, certainly coming out of England. And they did a lot of work with Helena Bonham Carter and and that type of thing. Very English, you know, very polished. But this was unusual. It was a woman, Connie Kaiserman, who was making her film debut. 
This was her experience. She was a white young woman who went to school in the um, sort of the higher toned area of, of Philadelphia. And she did a summer program and uh, she was very influenced by this young woman she met in it. And I should say a girl. And it was called My Little Girl. And so this was her conversation about her experience. And um, it was an opportunity for me, but it was her story. What do you remember most about the first film you ever did? Being chosen at all. I guess I remember more being um, feeling guilty because I had just joined the program and there were girls who had gone to New Freedom Theater for many years. So it was a summer program that I was in, but it was a on the year it had girls going all year round. So if you've ever gone to ballet school or that type of thing, they might have a special summer program. But there are girls who are ballerinas who come all the time. And um, Janice Roderick was the person I was up against when it came down to it. And everyone kept saying, oh, Janice is gonna get it. Janice is gonna get it. And I had no film or television or any sort of background with acting that much except for that experience. And then I ended up getting it. And Janice was from Philly and I was from Arizona. So I felt like I was an interloper and I felt really guilty. And I didn't know that that would be the case. I didn't think that they picked me. So I remember that, an overwhelming sense of guilt. And then how soon after that did you land on The Cosby Show? Many years went by. It seems like many years. I uh, did. Then it was about uh, after school specials and there were mini series that were being done. That was the age of the mini series. So I did. George Washington II, Forging of Nation, I played the slave Oni, was Martha Washington's slave, who I found out later ran away, and George Washington pursued her his whole time until he died. He was a really lunatic person in that way. And um, then I did a, a tour around the world with the Royal Shakespeare Theater. We did the movie in Paris. I'd already done some plays at the public with Joseph Papp. And that's where Camille Cosby saw me. Camille Cosby is the best friend of Gloria Foster. And I was at the public theater playing um, Joseph Papp's last play, The Forbidden City, by Bill Gunn. And apparently she went home and said uh, to Bill Cosby, her husband, you've got to see Gloria in this this uh, theater piece, this off-Broadway show, which Gloria's genius actress. She was the woman who was in The Matrix who said, um, light-skinned woman who said to Keanu Reeves, have a cookie, you'll feel right as rain. She was that light-skinned woman. She didn't do a lot of film work, but she was fantastic and um, didn't get her opportunity there. It was an amazing theater actress. Apparently, he, she said to Bill, you got to see Gloria and this girl. I was the girl she was talking about. He never saw the play, but I had been auditioning for the Cosby show for years because it was the only game in town. If you were black, there weren't that many shows for you to be on. If you were black young, there were very few things that you could be on. So maybe Roseanne, maybe Cosby show, A Law and Order. That was it, or an after-school special. And so I was brought in, I was called to his house. Could you be to his house in an hour? And casting director met me there and um, he created the role of Cousin Pam for me on the spot. But apparently I was a gift for his wife. That's what I was told. How has the legacy of Bill Cosby impacted you to today? Yeah, you know, it was a fantastic opportunity. I mean, again, it was the only game in town. You weren't going to be cast as an ingenue anywhere, except maybe on stage, which was a typical place where I was cast as an ingenue. But if you were young, and I was in my teens still, they didn't place Black females in roles that, of uh, oh, Juliet or Damsel in Distress or The Object of Desire, or any of those things, Scarlett Johansson or any of these people now might be. You had to wait to be a foster child, a slave, a prostitute. Those are my first roles. But... When I got on the Cosby show, that was the biggest place you could be. And for him to have created a role for me, for whatever reason, I was told by a stranger that I was a gift and he knew, he knew a lot of details that only somebody very close to one of them would know. So I, I, I knew he knew he was, what he was talking about. I didn't know at the time that it was perhaps through Camille Cosby conjoling him to go to the play and then maybe as some kind of, again, I don't know what their relationship is like. He gave her, you know, he said, okay, call this young lady to my house and and, and then gave me a role. So that's a weird thing. Just happens to be a byproduct of it, but it changed my life because suddenly I was doing film and theater, but I was on the big show in America in the last role that they created for the show. 
I grew up in an era when the Cosby show was like it, right? Like I would look forward to Thursdays because the Cosby show was on. And even for me, it's very hard to sort of reconcile what I thought of as such a highlight, a joyous childhood memory with who Bill Cosby turned out to be. How has that been for you who was so much more deeply affected by it? It's unfortunate that he wasn't who we all thought he was. There's almost nothing more to say. If you grow up with somebody and they turn out to be, uh, you know, have very complicated history with women, then that's being kind. And then also the accusations are so profound. You know, it's like you wonder who you were working with. Here's what I can say about that. I'm preacher's daughter and I have always lived in a world of contradictions because who shows up at church is but sinners and people who are not always what they seem, including pastors and teachers and all sorts of other people. So he's not unlike anybody who's in this human condition who may present a false face. And then once it's exposed, everyone's a little destroyed. Um, He, more than most people, had influence a great majority of the world because of what he stood for with children and his commitment to education and HBCUs, what he did for black people. It's extraordinary. So I come to reckon with it the way everyone else does, except that I never thought that anybody was perfect. And there's a lot of people who really put people on pedestals. Obviously, this is more than just talking about a simple flaw or fault. This is talking about assault. This is talking about rape. This is talking about using your power to put um, people who are not in the position that you're in, in a place that not only destroys their self-esteem, but can affect their lives for a very long time. So I think that we talk a lot about Bill Cosby, but there's been a lot of men with those uh, powers that have been allowed to prosper and been propped up by corporations who were making money off of them. And um, we should all endeavor to make sure that they can't prosper, more importantly, that they can be, if they've done these things, held accountable. Because of that contradiction, is there any part of you that that roots for him in all of this? What I do is I root for the healing of spirit. Obviously, that comes from a very dark spot. And so I wouldn't be my father's daughter if I sat here and rooted for his demise. I couldn't be um, a Black person in America and not have compassion for our position because we were raped and assaulted for hundreds of years on this land with impunity. And what did it teach us? To hurt others. I don't know his entire background. What I do know is that he was in a position of learning. He was a he was a doctor. He had been exalted and there was a lot of ways he could have gotten help. But I think that that type of thing acting on you, you don't get the help you need because you don't know you're sick. I don't know what it is. I'm not even qualified to talk about it. All I know is he gave me a job, he gave me an opportunity, and he was one of the most profoundly transformational characters in American history, not for black people, but in American history. And how can you root for anything except for healing all over? It seems like throughout at least the early years of your career, and I'm curious if this is still today, you have been placed in an arena of you are a black actress or you are a black creator and that only certain roles are available. Is that still, is that still the industry? Yes, it is. It's still the industry. It's hard to talk about it without seeming that you're downing things, but colorism is real. And so if you're blonde and you're blue eyed and you're a woman, you're more likely to be seen as something that's again, protected and more the ideal of what a a true American woman is. And then it falls off at that point. You know, dark-haired white women, you know, less so. Then you go to brown-skinned, Latina, uh, Middle Eastern, all that. Then you go to light-skinned black women, you know, and then you go to dark-skinned women like me and Viola and, and Octavia Spencer and those types of things. And if you look at what the types of roles we typically get to play, and I'm not talking about now, there's a little bit more, much more variety. But overall, it is the help. It is the, um, the nurturer. 
the caregiver, the nanny, the this, the that, because those are positions white people are used to seeing us in. Um, I think that with that power, I think white women haven't done as much as they needed to do to create opportunities for characters to do that. Thank God for Shonda Rhimes. She did. Um, up until that point, Diane Carroll was the only black woman on uh, network TV who ever had a show. Um, and that to me is unacceptable. There have been white women in positions who could have created that. But then again, I imagine they might've, and they ran into the big uh, daddy at the door at the studio that said no. So have we been in positions to do better? Perhaps. Have we had enough power to push through? Maybe not. I, I mean, I try to look at the whole piece. There's systemic issues. There's the will. There are people who have the will, but not the way. And then more importantly, there's how comfortable do we feel, as Viola Davis said in some clip I saw the other day with her doing E Pray Love. And we need to start seeing them as sensual, sexual, powerful people, but also complicated, three-dimensional, the way that we're talking about Cosby is the way we should talk about all men and characters. It seems optically when you read and you see the data, like the last couple of years have been sort of a racial reckoning in America where there are more quotas and more attention and more interest in diversifying what we see on the screen, whether it's TV or film. Has that not hit Hollywood in reality? Is that more just optics or do you feel the change? There's definite change, except the optics make it look like there's more change than there is. If you ask the people who do the data studies at UCLA, they say everything's expanded. All sorts of opportunities have expanded. There's more channels, there are more um, you know, platforms for people to, to have um, content, but then they do the data and the percentage still is almost the same. So I think that people are seeing more because there's more ways into your consciousness, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's having impact or it's as much as we think. So I don't want to say that there's not real movement there. There most certainly is. And people see one Black Panther movie and say, oh, look, Marvel did a Black Panther movie. Um, and let's give props to the great Jack King Kirby and, and Stan Lee for creating a black hero within the Marvel universe. And that's cool. But look at how many other Marvel movies there are with white heroes. I mean, you know, that's one. And that took how many years? Like forever. And then um, people might say, well, what about women? I said, well, you've got Wonder Woman. You've got, you know, these types of different things. There's not enough going on for women. There's nothing going on for disabled people. Well, maybe, okay, we had Daredevil who's blind, you know, that type of thing. And then what do we do for uh, ageism? You know, let's talk about that. I mean, there's so many marginalized people and indigenous, almost, they're not even seen. The Asians are stepping up and putting a lot of their efforts inside of, you see crazy rich Asians, you see, you know, Shang Chai, Chi going on. It's a powerful transition happening right now. In 2018, there were more children of color being born in America than white children. It's certainly going to be a rebrowning of America and the world, which is a majority of color world, will now, with its own weapons and its own entertainment, take center stage. So it'll happen. But right now, as we're seeing it, it's probably not as profound as people think. And now a quick break. Are you a woman-owned business looking for a new sales channel? I'm so excited to tell you about our newest partner, the W Marketplace. Founded by two women, it's a nationwide e-commerce site for women entrepreneurs and the shoppers who support them. It offers favorable terms and is a supportive community for female-founded companies. With over 500 women-owned businesses selling thousands of products and services, the W Marketplace might be your favorite new sales channel. Intrigued? Learn more at jointhewmarketplace.com. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B. 
but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks. with zero qualifications She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You grew up in Arizona until you were 11 or 12? That's right. And you're one of six kids? I'm one of six, yes. What's your relationship with your family like now? My father has passed away. My mother is still here. She's very much central to how I think she was. They were both orphans, one of six. Um, I always say I spent the first 11 years of my life in a hotel called Starlight off Route 66. I'm very pragmatic. I believe in doing your best right now to help a system that only can change if people care enough to uh, participate. And um, I think that that's the real difference is that I don't buy into fairy tales too much because I haven't seen one yet. And um, all I see is hard work and people making sacrifices and no matter what they're suffering or enduring, trying to promote unity and or love in some kind of real world way. So I love my mother. She's, um, if I get any of my imagination or any of my the sweetness, if I have any sweetness, it comes from her, from her. She's a very beautiful person and very kind and naive and yet uh, very wise. People call her like Black Yoda. And my father was a real firebrand. He was charismatic. He was handsome in a, in a black way, dark skin. He had a gold tooth on his front tooth. Um, that was when it was something that was a prestige and status and not some sort of rapper 
persona. And he also was, uh, like I said, when I, um, a man of many parts, he wasn't necessarily what he always showed himself to be to people. He was ridiculously talented and seen as a healer. He had been a boy preacher from since he was six. And back in the Pentecostal tradition, you can be a preacher that young, but you're also used in kind of because he was so talented. I think he learned the wrong lessons and he saw too much of, of people taking advantage of him. But then he also learned that because he was so good and this is no shade to white people, they never seen anything like him uh, except for Martin Luther King and these types of really powerful, charismatic black men that were coming out of the 60s. And they wanted a little piece of that in the 70s. And so I think when the Lutheran church took him up, they saw an opportunity to support and have a new voice in their, in their midst. And I think they were smart to do so. But I also thought that my father took advantage of this sort of crush they had on him. And I find that at different times in America, we, we find these black men and we, get, we fall in love with them, get crushes. And we don't often see exactly who they are or we don't support who they need to be. And I think black people are the same way that we have a profound, weird relationship with whiteness that's been put on us. So I'm not, I'm not blaming us. I'm just saying that we are at odds at it at all times. And it's so weird how we're all woven together in this world and we don't see that we have each other's blood. We have Irish blood and the Scottish, all this stuff. We are cousins. We're cousins through the struggle. We're cousins through actual blood, blood. And yet we sit here and fight and have all these deformities and psychological and mental incapacities. And um, we really are in, um, I, I just think America is so much, there's so much for our future that we could learn from each other. But we can't if we see each other as, as not family. And we are profoundly family. Speaking of how much there is to do in the world, how do you choose where to put your efforts? There's only one of you. So which causes and which efforts have you chosen uh, as, as the places to put your attention? I put my attention mostly on women and girls. I think that women are an example of a sustainable future for us all. I think that they always make the village better I was the most traveled surrogate for Hillary Clinton. And she sent me around the world to learn from people and be around people who I could have a template for and a blueprint. I'm grateful to her for that. She, because of that, I was around uh, John Lewis and got a chance to produce her his, uh, his uh, documentary, Good Trouble. Because of her, I met Maya Angelou and um, Yana Van Zant and Stephanie Tubbs and Sheila Jack. Jackson Lee, I just did a reparations documentary that follows Sheila Jackson Lee with HR 40 and reparations and Robert Ruth Simmons, the older woman who passed the first reparations bill in American history. And we watched that in real time. It'll never happen again, but she did it. And these are women. And I met amazing women running Google and all these diversity in diversity positions. I've met you, I've met Amy. I think I've, I'm most likely drawn to strong women because I don't believe that they get enough help People think that they have a lot of power and have it all together because they're so massively um, able, but they're often the least supported. And um, people are scared of often uh, strong women. I'm not. Um, I see them as being profoundly vulnerable. And um, if we're going to win this world, I'm going to help the people who I feel like will be the most attacked and could use, hopefully, the strength and the, how I see them, to shield them a little bit from the world and say, I see you, and what can I do to help? Talk to us about finding Tamika. I would sometimes speak at, I don't know, events or for causes, but um, I was speaking somewhere in Alabama, and there was a Black man named David Person who I stayed in touch with, and one day he got in touch with me and said, Erica, there's this woman that I met. Her name is Rebecca Howard. Her um, niece went missing in 2005, Tamika Houston, and Tamika Houston um, is the poster child for black and missing women and girls. And this phenomenon that Gwen Eiffel, the great journalist, called the uh, missing white women syndrome. And maybe you could do something about it in a podcast that would really be enlightening. enlightening. 
And um, I have a partner in Ben Arnon at Color Farm Media, and we have been doing film and tele. We call ourselves the Motown of Film, Television, and Tech, and we've been trying to find really great uh, partners. And we said, why not? We'll take this on. I have to tell you, I didn't think that it would get any funding because it's the hardest thing to ever do. We do fun things project by project, but uh, we went out with it, and I had just done the Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God. And he had asked me to do a reparations podcast with the Black Effect. And so we did a companion piece. Since we were doing the documentary, we knew it would take so much time. But he said, yo, Queen, remember that other thing you pitched me, Finding Tamika? I just got a deal at Audible with Kevin Hart. Why don't you come over there and do it there? So that's what we did. Last year, we geared up and we did Finding Tamika. Found James T. Green, who was a great executive producer. His cousin, uh, Chinesia, had gone missing. A lot of these people had had missing women and girls in their lives, and they said, we're going to do the best we can with this project. And so we did it. It's a true crime podcast through Audible series. There's 10 episodes, and um, we center Tamika Houston, who went missing in 2004, just before her 25th birthday. Um, it turns out she was killed and murdered by an, an acquaintance, um, a so-called boyfriend, whether we know that or not to be true or not. And um, she kept haunting people in their dreams and talking to psychics, a psychic who had actually helped find the police find her all these years. So with her permission, I asked her if she would allow us to tell her story. And as long as she sort of kept a little distance from me, because I said, I don't know whether I believe in any of that or not, but I know you're talking to people and I hear you through them. So if you let me... You will tell your story as a true crime story, but also as a ghost story, a neo-noir story. They would tell the real three-dimensional version of who this girl was. Why was that important? Because if she's only seen based upon the more salacious facts around her death and demise, she's put again into um, what I call the cultural ghetto. I wanted her to be an ingenue. I wanted her to be seen as a person who had flaws herself and who might have stepped into a boundary she didn't understand, but who also was young and beautiful and had young love and dreams and those types of things and the type of uh, real generous person she was. So that's what it is. It's called Finding Tamika. Finding Tamika is, is a podcast. It's an audio series. And then you also have a graphic series that you've done, which is now getting into NFTs. Like, How do you keep diversifying the places and the mediums through which you're making things? I... Amy, only do that because, and I shouldn't say only, it's given me an opportunity to build my skill sets, but it's because you can't seem to walk down the road on a straight freeway. You know, you always have to do detours because there's people who say no to you. So I have a graphic novel series called Concrete Park. We went out, me and my ex-husband, who's also a creative partner of mine, Tony Perrier. Tony wrote, is the first African-American to write a movie that made over $100 million. He wrote Eraser. With all he had accomplished, what I, what I had accomplished, we went out and we pitched this series or film that we were trying to do. And we went a lot of places and a lot of the, most of the executives, actually all of them were white and some of them really took it on seriously. And were like, this is cool because Tony was very visual. He had a background as James Patterson's protege and advertising. So he knew how to lay out things and he always had a great eye. He's a really wonderful artist that way. But with all that, could not get out of that. And we had a really fateful meeting with an executive um, at a studio who was the president of the studio. And we started to pitch our idea. Concrete Park, and he said, let me stop you right there. He said, black people don't like science fiction because they don't see themselves in the future. We looked at him and we were wondering why. And he tells us about this movie they made. And from one comment from an audience member when they did the um, focus test, uh, there was a young man in the audience who kept looking at the screen after it was over and stayed there. And they said, do you have any questions, sir? And he said, yeah, I just want to know how that get to Mars. Now, this is a story that's being told to us by the president of a studio. And, well, Tony stops him. He says, well, let me tell you something about black people. He says, for black people, the past is painful, the present precarious, but the future is free. We always live in the future. He said, you got your whole American future from black people. He said, we're the aliens that you took from across the ocean to rock your world, to make your planets twirl. And that's why you have rock and roll and blues and rap and R&B and all these things. And by the way, he says, you may not know this, but 
two of the biggest science fiction writers in the world are Samuel Delaney and Octavia Butler. And if you haven't been paying attention, Will Smith is the number one science fiction star in the world at the time he'd done Independence Day, Men in Black, all that. And this dude, no one had ever interrupted his diatribe or his rant. So needless to say, he wasn't going to be funding our thing or take it on. And we were walking out of this feeling a little, more than a little down because we'd waited so long and we'd gone everywhere. And Tony said, oh, fuck it. I'll draw it. And he taught himself after 50 how to draw and illustrate comics. So then by the end of the year, we were a dark horse published comic. We were a best American comic. But were we trying to be comic book creators? No, we were just trying to be filmmakers. But we became comic book makers. I became a podcast creator to make uh, something uh, about a story that they probably wouldn't tell on film and television. I became uh, a director to tell the reparation story because I thought it was important and I knew the players. So that's what I'm doing. It's building out a resume of skills, but it really would be nice if I could just act and act like this. This is all I can do. And now, a quick break. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You married the second man you ever dated, and you were married for 20 years. What has it been like since the divorce? He's your creative partner. Like, what's your relationship like? Again, I'm a preacher's daughter. I didn't go out much. I've been working in film and television since I was 14. I didn't hang out at bars. I didn't go to, I dropped out of college to go on that tour with the Royal Shakespeare. So all the places I might have met people, I didn't. And then I was working in these 26 shows a year with Living Single. That's a play a week. You don't get out. And um, my manager calls me and said, uh, that an artist wanted to paint me. I, that's all you have to say to an actress. I, of course I want to meet this <laughs> artist. And so they set up a uh, dinner at a, a restaurant in Venice and uh, he insulted me in some way. And I remember going, how dare he? How dare he insult me? He said something, um, it was just sort of dismissive. And I, I didn't know, um, I was pretty vulnerable about um, maybe how I came off. And, um, but I still wanted to let him paint me. So I showed up for the uh, photography and he took some pictures. And the whole time he's just yapping his butt off and talking a mile a minute. And I go, this is person knows more than anybody I've ever met. I've never seen anything like this before. And he's talking about Motown, he's talking about plants, he's talking about this, he's talking about that. He's talking about how the world internet is gonna show up. And he's got all these computers on his floor and boxes that he's bought with all his eraser money. And he says, I don't know what, what's going to happen, Erica, but content will be king. And he was right. At the time, there was dial-up and all this stuff, and no one knew what the web was. And I kept telling person people I was dating somebody who was on the World Wide Web, and people were like, what are you talking about? But I thought he was the future, not just for me, but in his mind and out of his mouth. I was so enamored with what he knew. And at the time, I think, because I hadn't gone to college, that sort of pulled me in. I had um, insecurities about my own knowledge and about my own grasp of what the world was. I think that was a lot of the attraction. And plus, Tony's very charismatic, and I like charismatic, strong men. And I met his mother, and she was a strong woman. She had married a black man and had been disowned by her own family. And Dorothy was a white woman that you did not trifle with. She had established in New York Queens Library you know, the Langston Hughes collection. She was a race woman in her own way. She was an abolitionist. And I thought, wow, that's a version of a type of woman that I hadn't seen except for people like Hillary Clinton. And I'd seen them in the black and, and in brown, but I really just thought, hi, I'd like to be her. So I fell in love with, with his mother and his father. And his father was a World II veteran and classy and had been a Pullman porter and had done muni- um, munitions and equipment in um, World War II, and he had a story to tell, but he was also a pioneering salesman. I wrote a a script that went viral online, a Mad Men script called uh, Uptown Saturday Night, and it was talking about his life, Leon Early, or Leon Perrier. He was an adopted person, too. And so there was a lot of things that mapped on. I got married to Tony, and then I realized we just didn't get along. Right now, we're great friends. But we didn't get along. We weren't necessarily a match there. And so I stayed 20 years. It took me 20 years to figure that out. I mean, what happens after 20 years that you're finally like, you know what? This is the day I'm just going to break this thing up. Because I didn't want to survive it anymore. I wanted to thrive at something that I thought was more in line with who I was supposed to be. And we were both miserable and we knew it. Um, At that point, you're not even being intimate the way you need to be. So how can you really say that you have a partnership? You can be friends and you want the best for each other. And some of the wanting the best for each other is admitting that's not necessarily a match in that way. I had also started to listen to different versions of what love could be. Listen to Alain de Baton, who's talking about romanticism and how we've sort of locked into that as opposed to really realizing what partnership and relationships are. I had to relearn that this whole thing we're seeing on TV was a bunch of bull crap. And they fed it to us wholesale, especially as women, that we're supposed to have this thing and we're supposed to be soulmates and also the crap. They didn't really teach us any real skill sets about how to build a relationship and what it would look like if it went raw. 
and they say, oh, go to go to therapy. But what if the other person doesn't want to get the therapy? Or what if nothing comes of that? Or what if you're just misaligned? Is it possible that you're not selling out your background? Some might be saying, well, that's against God. And I say, well, God's not living with him. I am. Shoot. I mean, what am I supposed to do? So I'm, I, I just did what I thought was best for me at the time. And I knew I was a decent person. And I wanted to get out of position to not be happy when I was at home and not feel like I was um, also leaning into the worst version of myself because I'm taking out my frustration on um, this uh, man in this relationship as opposed to being the really upbeat person I knew I could be. So we parted and it, and and um, that's why we're friends. He said, everyone goes, I can't believe how friendly you are with Tony. It's like he's never left. I said, he will never leave. He's I didn't leave him because he was a bad man. I left because I knew there was a better version of us somewhere. So we're gonna do the speed round and I will ask the first question. Erica, who leaves you starstruck? I love politicians. I love people, grassroots organizers. I'm starstruck by Stacey Abrams. I, of course, would be starstruck if I could be by Harriet Tubman and Shirley Chisholm. Those people, I was starstruck definitely by Hillary Clinton. But as I came to know her and saw the work that she did and the sacrifice she had made, um, it grounded me and made me realize just how human people are. And they can create wicked witches out of all of us, but we have to find a way to communicate the goodness and the humanity in us all. What book are you reading right now? I'm reading Cormac McCarthy's, um, the, uh, it's something about a child, something child or whatever, but a Cormac McCarthy book. I really love him and I think he's a fantastic writer. What is your nighttime routine? My nighttime routine is I always, uh, because I'm an actress, I always wash and take my makeup. I always take a shower, always. Um, I feel like water is healing. I want to wash the day off and it makes me feel fresh in my nest. What is your favorite way to spend a day off? My favorite thing to do is look through my stuff. I don't know, that sounds crazy, but I like to rummage through and, and look through the books or the papers on the floor. I see ideas written down that I might not have gotten to. I see um, suggestions that people might have given me. I just like to be like some sort of free range child, but like I'm a free range human and just do whatever I want without any conversation about time or um, any any. It feels a little reckless, but that's what I like. I like to rummage through my stuff. Okay, so Lou Burns uh, is our secret weapon. Lou has been listening to this episode, and he always asks the final and usually the best question. No pressure, Lou. I'm just blown away at your perspective. It is powerful. And I'm listening to you, and I'm I'm like, they need to put you on, like, The View. You know, those type of shows where where we're – where people were talking about things, you have a perspective that's just like enriched and like full. You know, I'll tell you a quick story about Whoopi Goldberg, who I saw last week. I had not seen Whoopi Goldberg in, since we did Long Walk Home, which was a movie with Sissy Spacek about the Montgomery busing in Alabama. And um, I was filming the Wu-Tang Clan, Wu-Tang, shout out to them. And we were in New Jersey and um, we were filming near her and the woman's house that was owned that we were film, filming in said, I'm going to bring my friend over. And it was Whoopi Goldberg. I said, Whoopi, I haven't seen you since then. It was like weird because I was like 20, 1920 when I did that film. Octavia Spencer was one of the PAs. We all played together in the parking lot in Alabama. This is how long ago it was. And I said to her, I said, do you see what your effect on me and my DNA. I said, the Max braids, that's because I had just worked with her. That's Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, I said, Felicia Rashad, I had just worked with her. I was playing a lawyer. I kind of was doing my best Felicia Rashad, but in my own funky way. Cecily Tyson, I had just worked or met her actually. And she told me, don't you ever let anybody tell you what to do with your hair. And so I had the strength to do these things and move forward, but they were all imprinting on me. And I said, I hope you know how grateful I am. And I got a chance to say thank you. So thanks for mentioning The View. I saw the Wu-Tang and I never saw you play a role like that before. Thank you. You know, you know here's the thing about um, Rizza, who I call Bobby. He said, you know, Erica, he said, Erica, in order to um, 
you know, have you get that role of Linda, uh, Linda Diggs, uh, I had to ask all my brothers and sisters, you know, if you, it was cool. He has 11 brothers and sisters. I was like, for real? But I felt, I was honored because I said, you mean 11 children approved and said, she can play our mother. So I said, I'll do my best. And then again, I asked Miss Linda, I said, Miss Linda, your children want to see you. I don't know what it is they already see in me. So just let me get out of the way and I'll do my best, you know, to, to show up for you because they miss you. And that's what I did. It's fun to be on the Wu-Tang Clan. I was over there playing around. Mari Van Peoples is doing his thing. We're doing all sorts of themed episodes on season three. So you got to check that out. And then also I'm on Run the World, which is on stars playing the great Barb Ballard, which was co-created by Yvette Lee Bowser, who did Living Single. So all some of the things that you think are taken away from you, they're given to you tenfold, pressed down and pushed, you know, falling over, as they say. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. I might be the world's biggest Erica Alexander fan. I really like her. She's seriously awesome. Her sense of purpose is very unusual, and you don't see that in a lot of people. And I think when you meet her or you listen to her, you're like, of course she's successful. Because she's like, she's a badass. I would always bet on Erica. That is a good way to put it. I would always bet on Erica. She is incredibly direct and authentic. And it's clear that she's had that sense of purpose that you talk about since she was really young. And it's really interesting to hear her talk about how she has worked not only in TV, but in theater, but in film, and then graphic novels, podcasts activism, right? Gone into all of these different arenas. I thought one thing that was like super honest and very, it made me appreciate her even more. She was like, I love to act. I wish I could just act all the time. But because there's not enough roles written for me or created for people who look like me, I've had to become a writer. I've had to become a producer, an activist. I thought that was striking. I think the thing The one thing I would add to everything Erica said to us, which was incredible, is that she's also really, really fun in real life. Like, she is the most fun. And to me, I think that's really interesting because sometimes the people who are brilliant at their craft and work so, so hard are not that. But Erica is that. Well, when she came to our Alaska Airlines event, like, she was the life of the party. She really was. She was... She was a huge personality. She made everyone feel comfortable. She was warm and friendly to everyone. And, and you don't often see that, especially with someone who's had such great success like she has. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you'd leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co, and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, and our male perspective, Lou Burns.